Good morning. Welcome to the Springs. All right, a clap, and I haven't even done anything yet. Come on, Jesus. Well, we're dismissed. Amen. I like that. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Alberto Lopez. I, I serve alongside our college ministry, and I'm excited uh, to continue our Advent series. So where we find ourselves today is in week two of our Advent series called His Name Will Be. His name will be. And so this series is coming out of Isaiah chapter 9. So this morning we're going to pick back up in verse 6. So let's just dive straight into the word. Will you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we dive and look into your word, Father, my prayer is that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to see you in this text. It's so easy to walk into a room with the distractions that everyday life brings and and miss out on what you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I pray that, that you would still our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So whether you believe it or not, every single person in this room is, is prone to forgetfulness. Uh, you can have the strongest memory in this room, but uh, we all are prone to forgetting uh, a thing or two. Uh, for example, I, I spent Thanksgiving break with my, uh, my wife's family in North Carolina, and I was sitting across the table from her grandmother, and, and she was uh, telling us that she was going to celebrate both her birthdays at the end of the month. I'm like, Grandma, how do you have two birthdays? Well, she said she was born on the 27th, but they didn't deliver the birth certificate until the 28th. And so she celebrates two birthdays. And so out of curiosity, I said, Grandma, how old are you? And uh, she looked at me with, with the most puzzled face, not because I asked her her age, but because she seriously could not remember how old she was. Uh, she could remember the year, but she wasn't very good at math. And so She forgot her age, and I think that's a pretty good thing if you get that old. Uh, Another example is uh, you might text your your spouse to pick something up from the store, and and you're walking through HEB or Walmart, and then you get home empty-handed with everything except that one thing you were supposed to bring home. Uh, Another uh, example, uh, maybe you, you pull out your phone to text someone, and you open up their contact, and, and by the time you have the messaging app open, you forget altogether what you were about to text or tell that person. Uh, here, here's one that happens to me all the time. Maybe you walk into a room to go get something or, or do something, and then once you're in the room, you can't even remember why you walked in to begin with. Uh, this happens to me quite frequently. Maybe you pull out your phone to check the time, and then by the time you lock your phone, you've done everything but check the time. Now, as this relates to our, our spiritual condition, our relationship to God, our minds are no strangers to forgetfulness. 
It's not a difficult thing to forget some of the wonderful things that God has done in our lives. I mean, to make this even more practical, you can be in church right now, worshiping, and then all of a sudden your mind drifts to thinking about the current thing that you're worried about, the thing that's stressing you out, anger, sadness, whatever emotion you're experiencing, and the next thing you know, you're disengaged. And recalling God's goodness and faithfulness becomes a difficult thing to do. And if we're honest, this is, this is my struggle. This is one of the reasons why one of the key themes we see in the scriptures is this idea of remembrance. The scriptures exhort us to constantly place our minds on Christ and remember who God is and what he has done for us because we are prone to forgetfulness. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we see a a chapter in its entirety dedicated to remembering the faithful works that God did, that God performed on behalf of Israel. Specifically, delivering them from the bondage of Egypt through a series of miraculous events. And so Moses, the leader, is exhorting them to remember God in all that they do. And in chapter 8, we get to verse 19, and this is what Moses says. He says, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other God and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. It's important to point out that that Moses isn't issuing some sort of magical curse over this people group. He isn't saying that if you start serving these other gods, you'll catch some sort of disease and all of a sudden perish. Rather, what he's saying is that perishing is the byproduct of living and giving yourself over to false gods. It will give way to a life of perishing. In other words, giving yourself to anything but the one true God will ultimately not be life-giving. Jesus says it this way in John 15. uh, When we are connected and abiding in him, we bear fruit. But when we're disconnected, we wither. Uh, My wife shares this awesome illustration. Uh, You can pick up a tree branch off the ground and have no idea what kind of tree it came from because it's so withered and dry. But when that branch is connected to its source, to the tree, you can identify what kind of tree it is based off the leaves or the fruit that it bears. When we're connected to Jesus, we, we bear fruit. But when we're disconnected, we begin to wither and perish. And how true is this in our lives today when when we remember God and give thought to how good he is? What what do our lives look like? Uh, We bear fruit. We have uh, joy, peace, trust, and confidence in the Lord. But when we forget God's goodness and faithfulness, what happens? We experience a form of doubt, discouragement, and we find ourselves feeling distant from God. Now, I want to tie this idea of remembrance back to Advent. Today, as a church family, we find ourselves in week two of Advent. And Advent means uh, an arrival, an appearing, a, a coming into place. What we are celebrating, and keyword remembering, is the arrival of Jesus. We celebrate the birth 
and arrival of a baby. Now, I know there are parents in this room, and I love getting around my friends who have newborns because I love hearing them specifically share how their baby specifically is extraordinary, special, and amazing. I mean, compared to every single baby that was born, this one is like second to Jesus. And I love it. I can't wait to have kids so I can partake in this. Uh, But Advent is a celebration commemorating the coming of Christ. But but what makes it special is is not that uh, babies are special and precious, but this baby is God in the flesh. And Israel longed for the arrival of their Messiah. Their history is deeply rooted in the anticipation of a king that would come and rescue and deliver them. Of a king that would bring peace and prosperity. And in their fragile and broken history, they get a glimpse of an ideal king, but not the promised king. They see a person like Saul who who rules and reigns with power and strength and drives out the neighboring enemies of this little Hebrew nation. Yet this king is overthrown by his own brokenness. A king like David, who is a man after God's own heart and was used by God in extraordinary ways, it was a small representation and prefigure of what was to come. And a majority of Israel's story is a search for a king. And we know that that king has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, the king the people of Israel were seeking, the king that could satisfy, protect, deliver, provide, and save. And that Messiah has arrived and arrived in the form of a baby. And so we want this season to serve as a reminder of Jesus' arrival. Not just the arrival into humanity, but a constant reminder of his arrival into our hearts. And my heart for this series, as we journey to remember Christ, would we not forget what this season is truly about? It's so easy uh, to forget what this time is truly about and get distracted by a number of things. For example, uh, consumerism. Uh, We look forward to December 25th because we are uh, anticipating, unwrapping, opening up the gifts and presents that we long for. Maybe finances are distracting your mind from seeing Jesus in this season and you're trying to figure out where the money is going to come from to pay for gifts or holiday expenses. Maybe this season altogether is difficult for you because uh, of the pain or hurt you've experienced that is associated with this time of year. It's so easy to forget with this Time is truly about and get distracted with all the different holiday activities and simply let another Christmas season pass right on by. And hear me, I'm not saying that that gifts and activities are bad, but they shouldn't be the only reason why we look forward to and celebrate Christmas. And if we're not careful, it's so easy to forget, to be forgetful of who this season is about because we're distracted by what this season brings. 
my prayer for myself and for you is that Jesus would be at the forefront and center of everything we do. And the thought of Jesus arriving and entering our existence would move our hearts to worship and draw near to God. So with this in mind, I want to spend some time from this text and and remind myself and remind you and every person in this room that his name shall be called the mighty God. Jesus is the mighty God. This verse tells us that this child, who we know to be Jesus, will have four different names. And each name tells us a story of who this person is going to be and what he will do. Last week, Pastor Peter opened up this series with his, with his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. And this week, we're going to dive in to looking at the Mighty God. And the following weeks, we'll teach on the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. So what I want to do now is, is consider the background of this verse, and I want to go wide. I want to go broad for a moment and first take a look at this moment in history surrounding this verse. What's going on in the life of time of Isaiah, who is writing down this ancient scripture? And then I want to narrow in and and take a closer look at Isaiah 9-6. So this is what the world looks like that Isaiah is living in. There are threats of war and chaos and corruption all around. They're the nation of Assyria. This nation has grown into an empire that has expanded and grown and now occupies the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so the political leaders of this day and age are fearful. They are well aware of their power and what they're capable of. It was a nation that stood in direct opposition to the values and the ways of the Lord. And so the king of this Hebrew nation, his name is Ahaz, he finds himself drowning in fear from the potential threat of this Assyrian nation. And so instead of trusting in the Lord and leading this nation in the ways of the Lord, Ahaz begins to form a political alliance with the enemy nations in hopes to avoid war and oppression. Now, Isaiah, he's the the prophet appointed by God. And as he sees this transpire, he stands in opposition and declares that as a nation, they are called to trust and follow God, not form alliances with nations that serve false gods. This is important to understand. In this context, a political alliance meant that you would change your ways, that you would change your culture that you would change the way you live in order to appease the people around you. And in 2 Kings, we get a picture of this, that these pagan practices of this nation were called despicable. As Pastor Peter uh, mentioned last week, Ahaz, in order to appease this political alliance, took on the culture and ways of Assyria and offered up his son in a burnt offering to a false god. And so instead of being a nation that lived for God, a nation that served the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God we see in Genesis all the way up to this moment in history, instead of serving God, King Ahaz makes a deal, a political alliance that welcomes in the Assyrian priests into this Hebrew nation. And now the worship of false pagan gods begins to shape and form a nation. 
Isaiah, this prophet appointed by God, he sees this and he calls it out. He says, this will actually lead to even more destruction. How did this happen? How did it get this far? This is a tragic story among many of a broken king who was driven by fear. Fear of the of what ifs, fear of an empire that would destroy him, fear of death. And so he makes a political alliance that leads to a nation's destruction and further darkness. And this fear turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy. As Pastor Peter preached last week, we see that darkness and gloom and anguish is the very real tone and reality of this Hebrew nation. And from chapter 1 to chapter 9, there is an indictment of this nation and their king for willfully sinning against the Lord, pursuing false gods, and giving themselves over to the wickedness that breaks the heart of God. And yet we get to this place in chapter 9. We turn the corner, and Isaiah begins to pin down these words of hope. And he says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people, this people, who walked in darkness because of the destruction that they invited into their own lives, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. In other words, that despite the wickedness of a nation led astray, despite the corruption and the brokenness that plagues this people, a light is coming. A promise is given that God will rescue his people from their brokenness. And with this in the background, we arrive at verse 6. And these are the words of hope the people of this Hebrew nation hear as this Assyrian army marches in toward their city to enslave them. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Although we see the wickedness and the, and the brokenness and corruption of this government, this child, the government shall be upon him. He will uphold and rule and reign in a righteous way that brings life, peace, and prosperity, not destruction. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Where all these other kings were, were wicked and prideful, and led astray by, by, by what they thought was right in their own eyes. This king will be a wonderful counselor who will do it, what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And, he, and he's not just the, a normal king. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And these aren't just names that you're supposed to call the child. These names reveal who the child is is going to be what he is going to do. These names tell a story of who this person is going to be. And so one of the Hebrew names we we see appear most frequently in the Bible is El Shaddai. You might have some familiarity with this word. It literally means God Almighty or Almighty God. Very familiar phrase. 
But when we read this verse in Hebrew, mighty God is not El Shaddai. It's a completely different name. It's El Gabor. And when we read this, what this prophet is deliberately doing is he's using a different form of the word to describe God. Why is Isaiah doing this? Isaiah is very specific and precise with the words he's using, and he's using a specific word to describe God because he's trying to stir hope in the people's hearts. So what's happening? The first time this phrase takes place is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the very first occurrence of this name of God, El Gabor. And what Isaiah is doing is drawing the people back to a specific moment in history to remind them that what happened back then stir up God, uh, stir up remembrance and illustrating who God was in the past to encourage them about where they are going. So let's look at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verse 17 through 22. It says this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, El Gabor, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear, he is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So what Isaiah is essentially doing here is that he's reminding the people of his time that this nation is no stranger to hardships, oppression, and suffering. He's reminding them of a moment in history where this very nation was enslaved to Egypt. And through a series of miraculous events, God rescued them from their slavery and lavished them with great love and provision. The idea here is that if God was faithful then, he is still surely mighty and great and awesome and will remain faithful because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Isaiah is specifically using this name of God that this Hebrew nation, when they would see El Gabor, would be reminded, oh, wait, we know this name of God. Where is it mentioned? Oh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Wow. God has been faithful despite our wickedness and brokenness. Surely we can turn and trust the Lord. So he's saying, don't trust in any other God. Trust the mighty God, El Gabor. And so here's what's interesting about this name. Uh, El Gabor can be broken down into two parts. The first word, El, is an abbreviation for Elohim, creator God followed by Gabor, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. And this word Gabor has a military connotation. It paints a picture of God as a powerful and courageous warrior. It means strong and mighty. Simply put, God is 
powerful. God has the ability to do what no one else can do. The idea here is that the people of Israel are surrounded on all sides by different threats, hardships, sufferings. There's, there's the pervasion of false gods, the, the very real violent oppression of a powerful nation. Uh, the economy is crippling. Starvation and poverty is real. And yet what Isaiah is saying is, is, is don't submit to false gods that will bring false hope. He's saying Yahweh is, is our mighty God. He is a powerful and courageous warrior who is able to rescue us. The mighty warrior, this mighty warrior is going to show up in human form. But the challenge for us today is who are you looking to? You see, you don't have to compromise and be driven by fear and worry and anxiety and doubt because of all the threats that surround us, all the conflicting emotions and problems that that we experience, the external turmoil and the inner turmoil. We can trust God because he's a mighty God. He is a mighty warrior who fights on your behalf. I mean, think about what this means for us. We have a tendency to think of God as mighty in a very ordinary and routine way. But what does it say about how mighty we believe God to be when we run to other things to bring us hope, peace, joy, or life when we experience this inner or external turmoil? This child who is called mighty God, he comes, he arrives, yet he doesn't come as the mighty God people expected. Comes as the promised mighty God we need. He came born of a teenage couple in a manger. The son of a carpenter lived a simple and ordinary life until starting his public ministry. His upbringing was far from mighty. And yet we see this specific prophecy among many others fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry, through his actions and words, puts on display his mighty divinity. In John 8, 58, Jesus identified himself as the great I am in the Old Testament, the sovereign Lord and God of Israel. The title I am, the Hebrew name there is Ego and Me. And Jesus is referring to himself as God in this moment. John, the apostle in his letter, straight out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by him, Elohim, creator of all things. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We see Jesus, the mighty God, who has 100% control and authority over creation as he walks on water and calms the vicious storms. We see Jesus, the mighty God, who has the power and authority uh, to speak actual life into a person's life when he tells Lazarus, a man who had been declared dead and buried in a tomb for four days, to come out and walk. And we see Jesus full of life. 
We see Jesus, the mighty God who has the power and authority to forgive sins when he encounters a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, verse 11, and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We see his almighty power and divinity on display in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus heals a paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And what happens next in the story is the scribes that were gathered. This was a group of people who were experts in the law. And as they overheard this statement, they say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus declares that he has the authority to forgive sins because he is the mighty God. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Like this Hebrew nation, we too are enslaved. Maybe not to the oppression of an enemy nation, but to sin. And we too were once far off from God and Jesus came and took on sin, which enslaved us to this world and brought us back into right relationship with God. Jesus, the mighty God, came to fight on our behalf and wage war against sin on our behalf, conquering our true enemy and brought us back into relationship with the Father. The New Testament tells us how this happens. Through the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumph, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. Okay, here we go. We were once dead, but God made us alive through the mighty warrior. Jesus the one that no one expected has come to rescue us. So what does this title, Mighty God, mean for you and I? First, we can trust Jesus. We can trust him with our fears and worries. We can trust him with our doubts. We can trust him with our addiction, brokenness, struggles, sufferings. We can draw near to him. Why? Because he has the power and authority to rescue us from ourselves, redeem us and renew us and restore us back to the image of God, the way he called us to live in the beginning. He is mighty enough to calm our fears, mighty enough to rescue us from our worries, mighty enough to move these mountains of doubt. He is mighty enough to conquer our addictions, our financial struggles, and suffering. Our God is mighty. And I love the way Zephaniah 317 puts it. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. The Lord rejoices over you. 
these barriers in your life, they're not a burden for the Lord to conquer. He is mightier. And he will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. I want to close with this question as we come to the table. Do you trust God and believe he is mighty? Not in an ordinary and casual way, but in a supernatural, biblically rooted way. You draw near to the God who, who, who parts the Red Seas, who raises the dead, who walks on water, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, putting on display his supreme power and authority over all the universe? Or do you draw near to God in a very casual and ordinary way? Does your life say something like this? God is mighty, but. God is mighty, but I I don't know. I I don't know if he can do this. I don't know if he's capable. There's a Hebrew phrase that the people of Israel cling to, and it's this, God is able. He's able because he's mighty. No matter the situation or the circumstance, do you call on Jesus and place your faith in him? Do you depend on his power and draw near to him? Or are you driven by fear and worry and run to other forms of comfort and power? Now, as we said earlier, this is one of the reasons why a central theme in the scriptures is the act of remembering. I love this quote, to forget our story is to forget who we are and why we are here. And God is very aware of the gravitational pull of the human mind to move towards forgetfulness. We are prone to forget that we serve and belong to a mighty God, that he is strong, powerful, able enough to move in our lives and rescue us from the mess that we've made with our lives. And so what makes communion so powerful is that in this act of remembrance, we have an opportunity to draw near to God and place our minds on him and remind ourselves that if God was faithful in in the past, that surely he remains the same. He is unchanging in his character and promises to be faithful now and forevermore. That we can speak to our doubts. We can speak to the hardships that surround us and remind ourselves that we serve a mighty God. And I believe that as we gaze into the eyes of Jesus, that as we look to the cross, as the hymn writer said, all of our doubts All of our fears, all of our worries grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And this is what Jesus invites us to. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified for our sins, he he took the bread and the cup. He says, this is my, my body given to you. And he handed them the wine and said, this is 
my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And at the cross, we see this amazing exchange. There we go. The cross, we see this amazing exchange where, where God takes on in the flesh all of our doubt, all of our fear, all of our sin in exchange for his life, his grace, and his provision. So we'll have communion elements in the front, in the back. You can process through the aisles.